Hello and welcome to 5 Minutes to Midnight. My name is Mohamed El Dafani and our guest in this episode is Amira Galel, a specialist in online hate speech, who will be discussing the role of social media in the Syrian civil war. But first, I will set out the context of the Syrian conflict from its start in 2011 to the present day. No one knows precisely how the start of the 2011 Syrian insurrection against the ruling Assad regime had been organized. What we do know is the fact that in March of that year, Syrian security forces shot dead protesters in the southern town of Daraa who were demanding the release of political prisoners, and that this triggered the violent unrest that steadily spread nationwide over the following months and years. What we also know is that since independence, there have been just three primary drivers of political change in Syria. The armed forces, the Ba'ath Party, and the Muslim Brotherhood. Throughout the 20th century, different Syrian regimes have brutally suppressed civil society movements and pluralistic, and politi- and pluralistic political expression. As such, there has never been genuine non-state-sponsored mass mobilization and consequently there have never been independent mass movements driving political change. So it should hardly come as a surprise that however it began, the 2011 uprising was quickly hijacked by external forces, each using the different Syrian factions as tools to pursue their own regional agenda. The funneling of vast sums of money and armaments by external actors pursuing more Islamist goals tipped the balance against the Assad regime. But this came at a cost, unleashing radical Islamist movements in the shape of Al-Qaeda and Islamic State Group, or ISIS, who rapidly came to dominate the opposition and pushed the state to the point of imminent collapse, triggering Russian, Iranian, and Lebanese Hezbollah military interventions. The prize has been saving the Syrian state, but the cost, especially that of the tactics used by the Russian Air Force, has been comprehensive destruction of virtually everything that stands. In this episode, our guest, Amira Galal, a specialist in online harmful speech, looks at one little discussed aspect of the Syrian conflict, that of social media. Hello, Amira, and welcome to Five Minutes to Midnight. Hi, Mohammed. Thank you for uh, having me. Thank you. So, let's talk about social media in Syria. Yeah, so social media in Syria um, has been a very interesting and ever-evolving case. Um, You could say that more or less Syria was a patient zero for online harmful speech, uh, whether that take the shape of fake news, disinformation, hate speech, um, you name it. Um, We saw an impact, so this was in the very early days of the development um, sort of of social media, if you remember, sort of Facebook came to prominence um, more or less around sort of 2005, 2006. So it was only really sort of like around 2009, 10, 11 that um, people started using it more widely across the Middle East. 
Um, and uh, in Egypt and Tunisia, which had traditionally had more sort of active civil society, uh, we really started to see a huge impact of, of Facebook in those societies. So I'm sure you remember um, back in 2010, the Khalid Zaid movement, and of course the yeah, uh, yeah. April the 6th and uh, trade union movements, they used uh, social media uh, quite actively to uh, sort of like um, uh, campaign and to uh, uh, mobilize. Um, so when the uh, revolutions broke out in Egypt, uh, well, first in Tunis and then in uh, Egypt uh, at the beginning of uh, 2011, obviously the rest of the Arab world was really watching extremely closely. Um, and in other Arab countries where populations were discontented with the corrupt old regimes that had been in charge for 50, 60 years, um, they sort of replicated the type of social media activism that had triggered the um, uh, movements in Egypt. Um, like I say, sort of like this was... Um, much easier to do in Egypt and Tunisia because um, they had more active civil society movements, whereas you didn't see this kind of online activism so much in Syria um, before 2011 due to the sort of like extreme nature of the surveillance state. Um, yeah. uh, like I think even to access uh, social media before 2011, you needed to use a VPN. Uh, virtual um, private network, yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah, exactly. So to sort of circumvent the um, sort of flight system in order to uh, be able to access certain websites that were blocked. Um, so um, I guess uh, what happened as a result of sort of this very successful and initially very positive mobilization was that uh, authoritarian regimes uh, across the region uh, sort of clicked onto the, or, you know, uh, clicked onto the game kind of thing and started to invest uh, a lot of funds, a lot of money, um, a lot of expertise into developing their own social media capacity um, and campaigns, sort of setting up uh, bot armies, uh, hacking the account of activists, uh, fake news, harassment, hate speech, you name it. Um, and as this kind of intensified, you started seeing both the Syrian state backed by Russia and Iran and the rebels backed by Qatar and Turkey employing very similar tactics, so promoting their narratives across the world, uh, raising funds, influencing that international debate, and uh, recruiting. And of course, with the sort of uh, recruitment aspect, a more extreme example, so it wasn't, uh, you know, like so there was recruitment on both sides for the sort of Iranian and Lebanese militias that uh, joined in the Syrian uh, civil war, but uh, also for um, uh, 
the opposition uh, bringing in fighters from uh, other parts of the Arab world, uh, especially those uh, opposition groups that were affiliated to the Muslim Brotherhood. But then, of course, most prominently, the most extreme example of this was the recruitment for the Islamic State, which saw um, many, many young people uh, traveling from uh, Western countries to um, fight in Syria. Um, but let's take a sort of step back to like just some examples of the kind of um, fake information or, you know, some just some case studies of what we're talking about. So um, another case that you may remember, um, maybe the case of the uh, Hula uh, massacre. Yeah, yeah. Um, and even the BBC made the error of uh, publishing what they thought was user-generated content um, of a photograph that was actually taken by a, a Getty Images photographer uh, from Iraq, like uh, way sort of many years previously, um, and they had to uh, uh, publish a retraction of that. Um, you've seen there various misinformation campaigns um, regarding sort of attacks um, from both sides, you know, like uh, uh, refutations of uh, certain things um, by the Syrian state um, in terms of sort of the use of barrel bombs and uh, chemical attacks, but also um, on the opposition side um, claiming that uh, protests had taken place when in fact there had been no protests and it was recycled footage or uh, certain atrocities which um, while they were not uh, few and far between like there was no re reason to sort of um, make false claims when something like this was already uh, taking place and this kind of I think uh, fueled a sort of certain uh, mistrust of what was coming out of Syria that um, I believe sort of led uh, to many of the sort of peace negotiations uh, stalling and there being a lot of sort of um, uh, doubt about what was going on. Um, and then, of course, another example actually that uh, really taught me a lot and I think is what actually sparked my interest in uh, online harmful speech uh, was the case of the Norwegian production team's uh, Syrian boy hero. Um, and this was sort of very early on in my career uh, at the BBC, but I had undergone uh, user-generated content verification training, and I thought I had all the skills in order to be able to tell whether a video was fake or not, being yeah. uh, quite familiar with the context and with uh, Syria, etc. Um, however, I made the very um, sort of public and embarrassing mistake of thinking that it was a uh, bona fide video. In fact, it was actually... Uh, filmed by a Norwegian uh, camera crew that were uh, putting this out sort of as an experiment as to whether um, media organizations were able to recognize, um, you know, sort of uh, bona fide footage versus uh, fake footage. Um, so that kind of made me really start thinking that even with training by an organization like the BBC, it's still very, very tricky to be able to distinguish, um, you know, what's real from what's fake. And this is particularly dangerous in a society where there is limited media literacy and certainly extremely 
limited di digital media literacy. Yeah. Yeah. Um, an aspect that's uh, not included in Arab curriculums. There's like little to no material out there to raise awareness of the stuff. Um, the mainstream media um, in those countries tends to be dominated by um, propaganda and incitement against whichever group the is out of favor with the government at the time. So we can uh, sort of understand, like taking that into mind, is how influential like a lot of this content on social media is when people lack the skills to be able to discern um, you know, what, what is actually credible information. And actually, of course, these problems led to the creation of things like the BBC's uh, user-generated content verification hub, um, BBC Monitoring's Disinformation Watch, uh, various fact-checking networks, and of course, uh, media development organizations investing quite heavily in uh, sort of like researching and um, verifying um, the different kind of stuff that we're seeing um, taking place on uh, social media. So since those early days of Syria, actually you are finding that um, these sort of like negative or more harmful effects in Syria and globally have really sort of escalated. And you can see sort of like how uh, propaganda is spread um, very widely, uh, sectarian hate speech in the Middle East, um, even things like, you know, migration routes on Facebook, etc. And unfortunately, um, platforms take very little action until there is a genocide, um, yeah. unfortunately. Um, not really any action was taken uh, for Syria, so um, it was too late, but like even um, more recently in cases like Ethiopia and Myanmar, um, they were very slow to respond, albeit they did take sort of uh, sort of some, some measures in order to limit the reach of um, sort of insightful material. Um, in my view, though, the, like, the, there's only so much that social media platforms can do or will be prepared to do. Um, um, and so it's really down to people to actually take it into their hands to um, report these things. A lot of social media companies, or pretty much all of them, they rely on automated detection uh, of harmful speech for content moderation, yeah. which unfortunately is really not very effective, especially in the Arab world where we have so many dialects and yeah. cultural nuances that are not really very well understood. Um, so we really need to start sort of taking the onus upon ourselves to report uh, violations and uh, harmful speech. However, again, like um, the problem is, is that when people report, they rarely receive a response. Or if they do, it tends to be just that the content doesn't actually uh, violate this. Um, that's, so, that's certainly my experience of uh, reporting various things on social media, either non-response or you get a rather bland uh, reply several weeks later along the lines that you mentioned. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's very disappointing. Um, I've been working in this area for a long time and, you know, even ones that sort of, uh, even cases that 
are very clearly in, you know, uh, damaging sort of like, you know, ISIS beheading videos, yeah, for example. Yeah. Um, it can be tricky to get them removed. While looking at uh, Syrian social media, have you come across instances either in the past or at present of uh, sectarianism or promoting sectarianism? We know that because the Assad family has been running Syria for quite a long time and that they come from the Alawite sect, that this has triggered a sort of sometimes quite nasty responses. I'm not talking particularly on social media, but uh, in in private discourses and you know uh, and and elsewhere in other aspects of the media against the Alawites in general from the Sunni majority have you come across any of that kind of harmful yeah. hate speech yes of course and actually you see it for all sides unfortunately so you will see some really sort of disgusting uh, sort of speech um, or, you know, content posts like uh, using very pejorative terms yeah. to dis uh, discuss Alawites. You'll even find Facebook groups or pages that uh, are kind of dedicated to that. However, by the same token, you will find like, Alawite posts that are very pejorative of Sunnis and sort of, you know, um, automatically assuming that anybody from the Sunni sect is uh, yeah. opposition and, like, um, again, some sort of very negative stereotypes um, about that. Um, so, yeah, unfortunately, it's kind of a, a vicious circle because obviously uh, one encourages the other. And these still exist even today? Yeah, of course, they still exist today. Yeah. Um, yeah, and commonly, and you'll often find sort of, uh, um, so uh, less and less do you see actual sort of like posts, like the posts themselves um, yeah. being uh, harmful, but the problem is, is with the comments. Yeah. So yeah. if you go into the comments section, you will see like just the worst of the worst. Um, and then you'll often see sort of like um, a lot of, ex you know, very unpleasant exchanges between people because, of course, um, social media is open source. So, yeah. you know, these guys can see what the others are saying. Um, and again, that sort of reinforces like stereotypes about different groups and uh, the sort of hatred that is now getting so entrenched in the general sort of Syrian uh, society as a result of like uh, over a decade now of war um, that we really need to sort of see a way of breaking um, the circle rather than just sort of like make, having these sort of harmful discourses taking place inside a echo cham chamber. Are you aware of any efforts that are serious efforts by say, non-governmental organisations, perhaps with the cooperation of host governments to actually tackle this problem at all? Yes, there's many organisations that uh, are working in this uh, area of um, work, many uh, media development organisations, um, so um, organisations such as uh, Internews have um, been working with local partners um, in the countries that are affected or in neighbouring countries in order to um, sort of be able to catalogue uh, this kind of uh, 
uh, content better and escalate it to platforms, but also to policymakers, um, you know, with the aim of uh, trying to get certain um, uh, legislation changed in order to make the internet a more secure place. Um, but you also have like local organizations. So, uh, for example, like there's a number of Syrian civil society organizations that are also focusing on this. Um, you may have seen recently the Syria campaign uh, released their report on uh, disinformation yeah, um, yeah. Uh, throughout the conflict. Uh, so it is increasingly something that is coming on people's radar. Um, However, again, it's like very uh, challenging because it's a complex issue that has many sort of, I guess, uh, um, moral, ethical, but also um, business and financial considerations and dimensions to it. Yeah. Uh, just another question. Uh, do you have any idea about the reach of these uh, platforms that promote uh, harmful speech, do they have many followers, generally speaking, or do they actually just have a, a niche following that that's sort of uh, inward-looking, as it were? Um, well, the, the, the problem is, is actually, even if it's uh, uh, sort of fairly niche, etc., if it's an open group or yeah, a comment that's yeah. taking place on a friend of yours, um, account like algorithms the algorithms that social media companies use to increase engagement tend to show you more of the kind of stuff that you want to see but also more of the stuff that will keep you scrolling yeah, yeah. Um, and unfortunately it's just human nature to want to look at sort of things that are shocking or um, things that sort of arouse uh, certain, you know, like strong emotions, etc. Yeah. Um, and this is unfortunate because it exposes a lot of people to harmful speech. But then, as I said before, it also acts as an echo chamber. So yeah. people who are following or, you know, like um, interested in sort of like sectarian uh, issues will be shown more stuff related to sectarianism um, or, um, you know, uh, either anti-opposition, yeah, anti Sorry, you get more of the same, basically. Exactly, exactly. So it just sort of reinforces people's um, outlooks on the world, I guess, yeah, without yeah. allowing them to engage with the, you know, other, you know, other side. Yeah, let's yeah. say. Just uh, one final question. You mentioned the experiment by the Norwegian film company to see how many media organisations fall for that fake piece of. Uh, Filming. Uh, are you aware that many actually fell for it? Um, I hadn't heard that, but it's. Uh, I'm glad to hear that I wasn't the only one that was. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Thank you very much. That was uh, very enlightening, and very interesting. Uh, that was uh, Amira Galal, who's uh, an expert in online harmful speech, talking to me, Mohammed Dufani, uh, for. Five minutes to midnight.